the resurrection story uh, is throughout the Gospels. This year, we're going to look at it from the Gospel of John. I invite you to share in the beginning of this story with me. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Today is the day death died. Will you say that with me? Today is the day death died. The tomb could not hold Jesus, nor can it hold those of us who follow him. Amen? Amen. It cannot hold him, and if Jesus lives in you, it cannot hold you either. That is why we celebrate this Easter, that God is alive and well in the people of God and the world today. We have been moving through the way of Jesus over his life, over the ministry of a thousand days where he's at the Sea of Galilee and then he's up on the mountain and then he's teaching and he's feeding and he's healing and he's praying and he's touching and he's blessing because that's the character of Jesus. Uh, Last week we went, of course, to Jerusalem with Jesus and the Palm Sunday Hosannas and then, of course, the betrayal, the false trials, the flogging, the beatings and the cross. And by three o'clock on Friday afternoon, all hope was gone. Jesus was dead. But friends, we are not Good Friday people. We worship not a martyr, but a savior. We are Easter people, and he is alive. Amen? Amen. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. And because he is alive, because Jesus is alive, um, the people that would follow him in the early days under great persecution under Rome in the first 300 years of the church, when it grew the fastest and was most heavily persecuted, when someone was walking down the road that was a believer in Jesus they, and someone would cross and they didn't know whether or not they were a Christian or not, they would say, he is risen. And if you also were a Christian, they would say, he is risen indeed. Let's try that one time, shall we? He is risen. He is risen That's not too bad. Let's try it again. He is risen. One more time, he is risen. risen We are Easter people. We are Easter people. Not sin, not hate, not evil, not even death would have the final word. If you're a person who follows along and fills in the blanks, we're getting started. Final word. Okay? None of those things. Uh, Reverend Adam Hamilton, um, who wrote the, the series The Way, he says that love, grace, hope, life, these have the final word. These have the final word because of Christ's resurrection. Not death, not hate, not evil. These have been replaced. The world turned on its head with love and grace and hope and life. And that is what an Easter person looks like. But on Easter morning, I would remind you, there was no Handel's Messiah. There was no Hallelujah Chorus. There were not thousands of angels gathered around the tomb that anyone could see. All hope was gone. As far as anyone could see, hope was gone. And Mary went to the tomb expecting to find a body. That's what she expected. She expected to do the dirty, horrible, smelly work of putting ointment on a dead body so that it might decay slowly over a year and then come back a year later and gather the bones of Jesus and put them in an ossuary box that would be placed in in an above-ground tomb. Other times they would call him a a sepulcher. 
because if you go to Israel, you can't dig down into the rock. It's just too hard. And so they would kind of um, go into sides of mountains uh, or hills and place bodies in there and let them decay. And then they would go and then they would get the bones and they, they would place them later as a two-step burial process. That's what she expected to do. I love the way Andy Stanley puts it. He says, nobody expected nobody. Right? I mean, nobody expected nobody. They expected a body. And he wasn't there. Scripture says it like this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying. One at the head, the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they've laid him. She was distraught. Depressed, despair, in deep grief, out of her mind. She thought Jesus was gone. And, and many of us feel like Jesus is gone in our most deepest, darkest moments, don't we? But he, Jesus was there all along. She, he was there watching her. But she thought that the resurrected Jesus was the gardener. She didn't recognize him. She didn't know that Jesus was with her all along. But Jesus was there. He had a new body. It was, it was resurrected. It wasn't the, the, the fullness. He had not yet ascended. But he wasn't the same as what he had been. And so when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And supposing him to be that gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, friends, this, this is a painful scripture for me. Because I know in my bones that right at the moment where Jesus is doing his best work in my life, I accuse him of doing the worst. He is there loving her, resurrected there for her. And she's like, no, you took him away. And he's like, Mary, are you kidding me? I'm right here. I'm right here. And so what does he do? He doesn't chastise her for a lack of faith. He doesn't chastise her for her blindness. He calls her by name. And he's calling you by name. She recognizes his voice. She recognizes the relationship. She recognizes the love in his voice for her. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, teacher, teacher. Now, this is beautiful in and of itself. And any of you all who've ever been reconciled to someone that you love, that you've been far from, it is a beautiful thing. But Jesus wouldn't let it stay there. He had something much bigger, much better much more world-changing, life-changing than simply coming back and being her teacher again. He wasn't a resuscitated teacher. He's the resurrected Savior of the world. And so Jesus invites her into a new, rela- new relationship, not, not the old relationship of the teacher. Jesus invites her to a new relationship. And she is the first witness of the resurrection. Now, I would remind you that Mary did not have a great reputation And women had no standing in that time. Isn't it remarkable that God would choose this woman, a woman, in that culture at that time to carry the most important message the world would ever know? And so many of us feel like, oh, well, you know, I'm not this or I'm not that. God couldn't possibly use me. No, look at who God chooses to carry the hope of the world. Mary Magdalene. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I've not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went. Notice that Jesus did not say to her, okay, now Mary, next semester, we're going to have a covenant Bible study. It's a 24 week course. I need you to take that. 
Uh, I need you to work in the children's department a little bit and work, you know, work your way up to the youth department. Uh, maybe get on an ordination track. And then when you kind of work these things out, I want you to go tell somebody. There's none of that. He sees her and tells her to go. I've seen the Lord, she says. Jesus said for Mary to go and tell, I have seen the Lord. And she does. And she does. Isn't that beautiful? How do you think it went? Oh, you, you've had those messages too, haven't you? Hey, go, go tell Grandma Easter supper is going to be an hour late. No, nobody wants that job. It, it, you still get Easter, but, but not the timing was just a bit off. So she goes to the disciples. And where were the disciples? They were what? Afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, the scripture says it like this. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house of where the disciples had met were what? Locked for fear of the Jews. Are these children or are they grown men? They are grown men. Have they been with Jesus for the last three years? Have they watched him raise Lazarus? Have they watched him feed 4,000, 5,000, 7,000? Have they watched him cast out demons from people and put them in pigs and run them away? Have they watched him stop the storm and the wind and the waves obey him? Yes, they've seen all of this. And yet they are afraid. Ten of them are locked in a room. The disciples were afraid that what happened to Jesus would happen to them. And they were right. It took longer than they expected, but Rome got pretty much all of them. Only John, tradition says, had a spared life, and that was in prison on the island of Patmos. Every other disciple killed for their faith in Jesus. You see, they had good reason to be afraid. They, they weren't being silly. They were being smart. They were afraid. They had good reason to be afraid. And yet it's in that moment that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, this sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? All of Rome, the greatest government Roman Empire had their boot on the neck of this small band of people. And Jesus says, peace be with you. Now, so when Jesus says peace, is he referring to the absence of conflict? No, absolutely not. Any more than when you say you're going to follow Jesus, you don't have conflict in your life anymore. For most of our brothers and sisters around the world, when they say yes to Jesus, it puts them in conflict with all sorts of powers and their family, friends, governments, and their very lives become at stake. You see, this peace that Jesus talks about is beyond what we mortals normally think about. It is a power that passes understanding that the world does not and cannot know without the power of God living within us. And as he comes in, Jesus shows them his wounds, his hands, and his side. So the scripture says it like this. After he had said this, he shows them his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They couldn't believe it. It was like Mary was right. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh, she's not crazy. Well, she's still kind of crazy, but still. I mean, you know, it's true. I guess it's true. He really is alive. And Jesus immediately sends them in the power of the Holy Spirit. You find a pattern here? Sees Mary. He calms her down and sends her. He comes to the disciples. He calms them down, shows, identifies himself, and then he sends them by the power of the Holy Spirit, not on their own, but by the power of God. And Jesus says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And that's not just for them, friends. That's for us. This is what Jesus says. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. He gave them the Holy Spirit. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit, the very power of God in your life. But here's the thing about that story. How many disciples were in that room? 
10. Judas had already killed himself. And Thomas missed the memo. We don't know where Thomas was. Nobody knows. Probably shopping at Walmart, getting ready for the next Easter. You know, we just don't know. Who knows where Thomas is? But I want to ask you this question. What does Jesus do with doubters? You see, in religious circles, there is this insidious temptation to say that Jesus doesn't really like doubters. And they'll quote him. They'll say, oh, you should have more faith. If you had more faith, you could do this or, or that. But I, I want you to look closely what Jesus does with doubters. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. There were ten of them in the room. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And what does Thomas say? <laughs> yeah, right. Come on. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails, and put my hands in his eyes, I will not believe. And then you get this, this nice little tagline in the next piece. A week later, a week later. Now, if you've seen your master crucified by another government and people are knocking at your door and you wonder with every knock if that's your last moment, if that's your last breath, if you're going to be on a cross in the next 10 minutes, a week is a mighty long time, isn't it? You ever been afraid? Some of you have been afraid for your life and you know how all time slows down like that. Imagine a week of it. Every knock, every look, every stranger, every time you go anywhere, you think that's the end of you. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, here comes Jesus again. And he stands among them and he says, peace be with you. And you see, Thomas didn't believe even after 10 people had told him. He still refused to believe. And this week later, this week later happens and and Thomas doesn't know what to do. And here's a good question for us, isn't it? How long do you give Jesus to show up? Now, as your pastor, I know for some of you, it's like, uh, well, that was about 10 minutes ago and you, it hasn't happened. Right? I come to church and, and, you know, if the opening set isn't just exactly right, I didn't feel it this morning or, or this or that. I mean, come on. We, we are people of the clock. Right? I mean, how many of you are with me if I say, okay, I'm glad to see you Easter. Um, and about a week from now, if you'll just stay here, Jesus is going to show up. Any of y'all hanging with me for the week? I got one. Good. All right. Right? Right? You get this. It is hard to wait. Any of y'all enjoy waiting? Like, oh, I just love long lines and you know, I just love waiting. No. It is hard, isn't it, when, when you have to wait for Jesus to show up? And then I wonder this. When, when Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my, my fingers in your hands and my hand in your side, did it hurt Jesus to reopen that wound in his side? Some of you have had the very uncomfortable experience as I have of having a drain in a wound. And there comes that day, and you know what's coming, when the surgeon says to you, it's time to take out the drain. I was 16. I was in a full cast from my hip to my toes because I had a, an complete, basically a knee replacement and ACL reconstruction. And back in those days, they didn't you know, just start working you like they do now. They kept you in a cast for about six months. And so the end of my three days at the hospital up in Enid, they said, well, here comes the drain. And if you would like to see my scar, it's still from here to here. It just flays you open because the drain has to come out. And it reopens the wound. It is the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. Just reopening that wound. And I wonder what that was like for Jesus. You see how much he loves Thomas. Thomas. 
You see, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Because there are a lot of folks out there that will quote to you, Jesus, do not doubt, but believe. But never quote Jesus about what he says without the context of what he does. Because he says this to Thomas as he opens his side and Thomas has his hand in his chest. Inside his chest. Perhaps so close he could feel his heartbeat. And you hear the love, compassion. He says, Thomas, you don't have to doubt anymore. Don't doubt. Believe. Your hand is inside my body. I have done this for you. At great pain, at great cost. We dare not ever quote what Jesus says without also knowing full well the context in which he is doing it. You see the passion and the love and the care and the compassion of Jesus in that moment. And Thomas answered him, the only thing I think any of us could say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Because you've touched me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And, and, and wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if if we could believe in Jesus without putting our hands in his side. It wouldn't be great if we could trust in him without coming face to face with the physical manifestation of him. You see, it's good for us. It's good for Jesus. It's good for the world. It's not a scolding, friends. It's a matter of fact. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who believe in me who haven't seen. And those of you who believe and know Jesus as a reality in your life and you haven't seen him face to face, you know this is true. Friends, he's not mad at you. He's not arguing at you. He's loving you. He's loving the world. And at Jesus' touch, we answer with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Say it with me. My Lord and my God. This is who we are when we see Jesus face to face. So, so friends, here's the thing. We are not here to celebrate a fake faith that doesn't have pain, that doesn't have hurt, that, that isn't real. We're here to celebrate real faith that includes doubt. Doubt like Thomas had. Doubt like Mary had. Doubt like the disciples had. Doubt like you had like I have. Real doubt. And and friends, I will take a church with faltering faith every day over a church with fake faith. Right? Because Jesus can do something with faltering faith that he never gets the opportunity to do when you're just saying, it's Easter, my life is perfect, look at me. I'm here, it's all good. Well, it's never all good. For many of us, it's 97% good. But that 3% is messed up right? We need help. We need a savior. We need a second chance. Now, I know this can be a little heavy, so I want to lighten it up. I want to show you one of my favorite videos I've seen over the last couple of years. And and if you laugh out loud, it's okay. I laugh too, but it's also kind of painful. Imagine if, if what you were trying to do was broadcast in front of the entire world and you had to live with the results and you didn't know how it was going to go. Um, let, let's just, I don't know if you've seen the diving championships at the Olympics from 2016. Um, but this is one of my favorites. Maybe, maybe you'll like it too. <laughs> Let's slow it down in slow-mo. <sighs> one more time. That is a two and a half back somersault. Well, it's a two and a quarter. Oh! And what does he get for his pain and anguish? A high five from his buddy. And zero, 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 point zero. 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 Have you ever had that day where you're a zero? 
I have. And I, I have been a diver at time or two. And as much as I laugh at that, that takes courage. But that's not the dive that takes courage, is it? It's the next one. It's the second chance that takes the courage. It's the second chance that goes, my back still hurts. It's the second chance. And then, here's the thing, friends. When we talk about Easter, we talk about second chances. We all need a second chance. Say that with me. We all need a second chance. Everyone here does. I do. You do. But here's the thing about second chances. If we're not careful, we'll romanticize it as if it's some sort of Hollywood movie and we know how it ends. You don't know how it ends. A second chance requires incredible courage of going back up that diving board and saying, I hope it doesn't hurt so bad this time. I hope it's better this time. That's the thing about second chances, friends, is you don't know how they're going to end. It takes incredible courage to say yes to a second chance, to even give it the possibility. Because most of us, myself included, I'll try something one time with no rehearsal and no practice, and it will go badly. And you know what I say? Give me a second chance. No. I'm like, I'm not doing that again. Right? None of us like to fail. None of us like to lose. And so when it doesn't go exactly like we have in our head, we just quit. We just quit. We just push it down. There, but that's not a second chance. We all need a second chance, but it takes courage. It takes the Holy Spirit in our life. I want to share with you one of my, my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. It comes from Mark 9. And it's a story about a father whose, whose son ha, has been tormented his whole life. Probably epilepsy. He, he you know, basically goes into grand mal seizures, gets thrown into fire, gets in water. And it's scary for him. It's scary for the community. And, and, the, and the father goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus if you can help my son, help, help him. And Jesus is like, if I, if, what? If I can. Of, of course I can, if you'll believe. And again, this gets, this gets misconstrued. And Jesus says, you just believe. And the father cries out. I love his transparency. I believe, Jesus. Help my unbelief. Because he knew Jesus saw his heart. And the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus, but Jesus. No better words in all the world than but Jesus. When all hope is gone, but Jesus. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. I wonder what the father thought. Like, oh, I finally got him to Jesus. I really hope this works. On that, because he had seen his son go through so much. So much. But Jesus took him and lifted him up. He was able to stand. You see, second chances begin with honest, faltering faith before the Lord. That's where they start. You think the courage of that father that asked Jesus for that help. You know, that wasn't the first time he'd ask anybody for help. He'd been praying, hoping, wishing. And I, I want you to know that, that this is true for me, too. About 10 years ago, I, I met the Meyer family. Uh, many of you all know them. Uh, they moved to Florida for a couple of years. I was so jealous. They're now back. Uh, this is them just a few, few days ago uh, at a service we had here for uh, the family. Uh, a wonderful family. Uh, but in 07, uh, I first met Kathy. They had no kids. Uh, she was pregnant with Eli, um, and then we uh, did the, the baptism in the other building over at the chapel, um, and, and it looks like this. And so little Eli, he's that big, he's so cute, and um, it, was just, it was just a great time. Uh, so that was 07. Uh, by 08, uh, Kathy was pregnant again with triplets, with triplets, uh, Jordan, Drew, and Brady. Uh, we had uh, a wonderful um, shower over in the chapel. It was beautiful and great. We had little blankets. We had little prayer knots. We were praying for them, and we knew that it was high risk. Um, and it came time um, for the birth, and the birth was glorious. And the kids uh, were early. 
Um, and they were small, but they were making it. And then a few days later, Andy and Kathy came to me, and I came to realize that Brady Thomas Meyer, little kidneys weren't working, and he was swelling with fluid, and with every ounce of fluid that he filled with, the more pain he was in and the worse he got. They contacted every pediatric nephrologist they could find to see how to work the kidneys, but with every bit of antibiotics that they were forcing into his body, the the worse he would get. And then they had some incredible decisions, horrific decisions that no mortal should have to make about how long do you let your little baby suffer and how are the other two kids doing. And so it came that uh, in March, uh, the little ones were born on March 6th. um, And by March 19th, the family knew that they needed to release him to the Lord. In that time, the church prayed and fasted, and I've never prayed my guts out like I did for Brady Thomas Meyer. And we prayed for miracles, and we prayed for hope, and we prayed that the the medicine would work, and, and that the doctors would work, and that something would work, but it didn't. And what made it worse is it did one day, and then it didn't the next day. And so you had sort of this false hope where you thought, well, maybe, maybe, and you'd give reports to people, and then it didn't. So they asked me to come and baptize Brady before they pulled him off the ventilator and he died in his mom and dad's arms. And the funeral service here was probably the most difficult day of my ministry. And what they didn't know and what I haven't shared publicly is as we would pray for him and I would go to children's hospital for him, I would go down in the parking garage and I would rail at God. I was like, God, what are you doing? I am praying, I am fasting, the church, we are doing everything we know to do. We know that you're the Lord of life, we know that you're the Lord of healing, we've seen it, we know that this happens. What are you doing? What are you doing? And I doubt, and I struggle, because is isn't the way I would do it. I love Andy and Kathy and their families, and what is going on? We are Easter people, and this is death. What is, what is happening? With a lot of prayer and a lot of love and a lot of grief and a lot of support, we kind of worked that through. And they came to be beautiful, wonderful people who were even able to celebrate um, their son's death. So they go to the marker up in Indiana and uh, they gather around and they, they celebrate that. But, but here's the thing. A number of years later, uh, right before they were about to move, um, Kathy comes to me outside the office and she goes, guess what, Pastor Mark? I'm like, what? She goes, we're pregnant. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like, what? And she's like, no, we didn't expect it. We, we didn't think it was even possible. And we're pregnant again with Luke Thomas Meyer. Um, just unbelievable joy. And like, how are you doing? Was, no, no, it's, it's, all, it's all good. Um, except that when he was born, uh, he was worse off than the triplets. And so he was in the NICU and then in the PICU and, and we would go and, I mean, it was beyond brutal, having known what the family was bo- going through before. And at this time, the first time, the doctor's like, well, you know, Brady might make it, Brady might not make it. When I came to visit Luke, they said he's not going to make it. That's what the doctors were telling them, telling me. They would, you know, they kind of pull you off the side and they're like, look, he's not going to make it. And so um, I was at a place where I couldn't even hardly go up on my own. And so I would drag my children with me to go see him. And we would pray for them together. We would suit up and we would do those things. 
and pray for Kathy and, and for Luke. And, and again, I would go down into that children's um, parking garage and I was like, Lord, not again. No, no, you can't do this. They, they were trusting in you. This is the second chance. This is the second chance. You can't put this family through this again. Like, I, I won't even do it. Like, like, you know, if you don't save them, I'm out. I'm going to sell insurance. Something. N- none of this. And I don't know if my lousy, messed up, horrible, backwards prayers helped at all. I hope they did. All I know uh, is that when they go to visit Brady's grave now, uh, Luke goes with them. And, and when I come here to church, uh, Luke is in our Children's Day Out program. Uh, and Kathy's going to be leading that program again that she started a few years ago. And, and so now Luke looks like this. And you know what I call him? Easter! That's Easter. That's what Easter looks like. That's resurrection. That's miracle. And that kid looks at me and he's like, hey, Pastor Mark, got some candy? I mean, he's all kid. And here's the thing. I don't know why God chooses to take Brady to himself and to allow us the love of Luke in our lives. I don't know the why of that. I don't know. I don't claim to know. I want you to know that I doubt in the meantime. But we have to have people in our lives that we can share these things with. Real faith, faltering faith, not fake faith. So who do you have in your life with whom you can share your doubts? Sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll say, well, are you in a small group? Are you in accountability? They're like, yeah. And I say, well, have you shared this doubt with them? They're like, oh, heavens, no. What are you doing? We need this, friends. We need to be able to share this. So our action step is this. Share your doubt with God. Because God can resurrect that faltering faith. But what I find is that only gets real when you share it with someone else. But your blank is this. It's not someone else. It's someone safe. You can talk to Pastor Creighton. You can talk to me. You can talk to Pastor Andy. And all of this is to say that your pastor's doubt... Your pastor at time has faltering faith. And it is the only the power of Easter that God resurrects it. He knows the end of Brady's story. He knows the end of Luke's story. He knows the end of your story. You don't. He does. Only God. But Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. And some of you this Easter think that Easter is about something that happened way back then or for someone else. It is not. Let me say it plainly. We all have doubts. We all need second chances. Easter is for you today. Receive it with joy. Because he is risen.